open up your Bibles to John chapter 16. Our ushers are coming up and down the aisle uh, right now. If you need a copy of God's Word, just raise your, your hand. It's a moment like when a high school teacher on the last class of the day gives the, the final details about the upcoming exam and, and what you need to be studying for if you're going to get a good grade and have success at the next level of your, of your education. It's like the sales manager gathering their team together to make sure that everyone understands what's happening for the new product launch. It's the hockey coach after three periods of hockey you're going into overtime and it's the seventh game and you're trying to get all of the players on the same page to understand the game plan. It's a moment like that. That's what John 16 is. It's Jesus giving his last and final words to his disciples. We've taken several weeks to go through John chapter 14 and 15 and now we come to the end of chapter 16 and this is really the last of the last words. The, the end of the end. After this it's only a matter of minutes. Jesus is going to pray and then he's going to get arrested and all of the events of Good Friday and Easter will begin to unfold. So let's listen in and hear what Jesus has to say to his disciples at this crucial moment, beginning at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I, I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? 
Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In these final moments, Jesus wants his disciples to understand his victory. He wants his disciples to know that he has indeed overcome the world. Jesus, is a, he's, he's a realist. He, he tells them flat out, you're going to have sorrow. You're going to lament. You're going to weep. It's going to be really, really hard. It's important for us to recognize this because some of our neighbors, some of our family members, some of our co-workers think that what we're doing this morning, the reason why you got up this morning and shoveled out your driveway and came to this church, the whole point is escape. That you're somehow just here retreating from the world, trying to escape from the hardship and the difficulty just for about 90 minutes a day of escapism. But listen, that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus is very real about how this world works, about how hard life can be. But he assures us of his victory. And we're going to see from this passage, we're going to see Jesus makes three declarations, three things that we can hold on to. Because Jesus has overcome the world, these are Three truths that we can take with us whenever we go through difficulty. Here's the first one. Jesus' victory means that we have joy in our sorrow. It means that we have joy in our sorrow. He begins by talking about verse 18. In a little while you'll see me no longer. And then in another little while you will see me. And you look down at, at verse 17. It says, some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. Again, a little while you will see me because I am going to the Father. He said he was going to the Father back in verse 10. We need to remember this is part of one sort of long discussion that was happening among the disciples. It's also important for us to know that there was sort of dialogue and back and forth and then pauses or the conversation would go off on different tangents and John doesn't record all of those conversations under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So at some point Jesus said something like, a little while... You're not going to see me. And then, and then in a little while, you are going to see me. And then the conversation went on. But a couple of the disciples were like, what does he mean by a little while? Right? And they, they, they ask a flat out in verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean? What does he mean? I don't know what he's talking about. Maybe you feel that way in church. Maybe you're leaning over to your spouse or, or to, your, to your friend. I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. Right? And so Jesus knows. He understands. They're not mowing what he's growing. They're not picking up what he's putting down. And so he circles back with them. They don't have the courage to ask him because it's such a tense moment. But they're like, the little while, I don't get the little while thing. Did you understand? I didn't get it. So he, he tells them. Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. He said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I mean by saying, a little while you will see me. And again, in a little while you will, you will see me. It's interesting, he doesn't clarify the timing. We know, right? We can look on this side of the cross 
from this perspective and say, well, the little while, that was Friday. This is happening Thursday night. So the little while was Friday when Jesus would be crucified. And then the other little while, that was Sunday, Easter. So we know, but they don't, they don't, they don't know what, what is happening here. But Jesus doesn't clarify the timing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. He's real. This, this is going to be the hardest moment of your life, guys. Christians, followers of Jesus, people who are close to Jesus, weep. People who are close to Jesus, people who follow Jesus, his disciples, lament. We need to understand that. We need to understand that church and the Christian life is not just about putting on a a smiley face and acting like everything's okay. It's not always okay. I mean, the Psalms, they give us the script for how to lament. They give us words to, to let out of our heart, through our mouths, what we're going through, the anguish that we so often experience in this world. And Jesus isn't telling us to escape from that. He's telling us how to get through it. He says, you will weep. You will mourn. And, and to make it worse, while they're going through this desperate time, he says, the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but the world will rejoice. When, when Pilate laid down the, the guilty verdict, no doubt the crowds would have been cheering. And they were mocking him and jeering at, at him while he's carrying the cross to Golgotha, even while he's suffocating to death on the cross with his hands and feet pierced. They're wagging their heads at him, hurling insults at him. They're having a party and a parade. And yet they were going to be sorrowful. Sometimes that happens in the Christian life. Sometimes the things that make Christians sorrowful are the very thing that our world chooses to celebrate. They throw a party or a parade or honor on something that would bring tears to the eyes of a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is very real about the sorrow that we experience in this world. But he says that your sorrow will turn to joy. This is a theme that we, we see all throughout the Bible. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 13, talking about uh, joy coming out of sorrow, it says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. This idea of reversal. You used to be sorrowful and now you're joyful. Isaiah 61 verses 2 to 3. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And the whole story of Esther is a complete reversal. The the way the story ends, it says, the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. This is the way our God works. In fact, there's a certain category of joy that is only possible to experience on the back end of sorrow. There are some people here right now and there's some pages in your life story 
that have been very, very difficult. And every time you turn a page, you think it's going to get easier, and then somehow it just gets better. For some of you, it's not pages. It's entire chapters. For others, it's entire volumes in a series of just sorrow, sorrow, sorrow. But we can be confident... Jesus tells us here that our sorrow will be turned to joy. If it was true for the disciples in that moment, before Christ's ultimate victory, it's true for us now, after his victory. We can be confident that there is another page, that there is a new chapter, and that chapter will have joy in it that is deeper and more resilient and more beautiful, and more glorious because of the sorrow that preceded it. Then Jesus uses a very vivid illustration in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. One of our sons had a birthday uh, yesterday, and uh, we have this little tradition that the night before uh, a birthday, uh, we go over to the dollar store, we get a big inflatable balloon with like the, you know, their, their age, and we tie that to their chair, and then we go over to the florist. And uh, the boy picks out flowers, and then the florist arranges it in a bouquet, and then In all of the busyness and the celebrations and the song singing and the cake and the presents about the boy, the boy stops and gives flowers to his mother. Because without her, there's no him. And he will, especially because he's a he, will never understand what she went through in order for him to be here. It's, it's interesting. I'm not going to be guilty of mansplaining to try to talk about how difficult labor is. But when you eavesdrop on mom talk, you know, we have a moms and tots group here that meets on Thursdays. Uh, moms, you guys are welcome to uh, join in on that. When you eavesdrop on mom talk, you always hear them talk about stages, Right? Oh, I love the newborn stage or the toddler stage or the terrible two stage. And sometimes they even talk about pregnancy in the terms of stages and the different trimesters. And, and, and is it a boy or is it a girl and morning sickness or whatever it may be. There's all of this. Stuff. The stages before the baby's born and the stages after the baby's born. But they, they never talk about the labor stage. They never say, you know, my favorite part was when my child was in the birth canal, you know? The contractions, you know, we didn't get the epidural in time. That was my, no, they don't even, they, they don't even mention it, do they? But it's something that every mother goes through. And, and again... A man, a little boy, cannot understand clearly. The disciples, as men, could not truly understand, but they would know that the joy that comes afterwards. See, there's some joy, there's a specific category of joy that can only come on the back end of pain and of sorrow. And that's what Jesus is promising them Look at verse 22, he says, you 
So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. It's not a surface level, skin deep kind of a joy. It's a heart level joy. Your hearts will rejoice, and then look at this, and no one will take your joy from you. This is a joy that is permanent and impervious and impenetrable, that no one can take it. That once Jesus gives it to you, it's yours. Age may take away your strength. Disease may take away your health. Unemployment may take away your money. Death may take away your loved one. But nothing and no one can take away your joy if your joy is in Jesus. Verse 23 says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. He's still on this theme of joy, but he's moved from the theme of pain to the theme now of prayer. God is a joyful God, and he wants his people to experience joy. And Jesus here is describing the two main ways where he gives his people joy. He gives them joy in a counterintuitive way through pain, but he also gives them joy through prayer. He says in verse 23, in that, in that day, you're going to ask nothing of me. Up until this point, the disciples wanted something. They needed a miracle to be performed. If they had a question, they just went right to Jesus, face to face, asked them a question. Jesus is preparing them. It's not going to be like that anymore. The Spirit is coming. It's going to live inside of you, but you're not going to be able to just walk up to me and ask me a question or cry out to me for help. He, Jesus wants his disciples to experience joy. And so he's, you got to get ready. you got to remember what it means to pray to the Father. And in praying to the Father, your joy will be full. You see, our joy will, until we develop strong prayer lives, our experience of joy will always be just a little bit lower than it could be. He says, when you pray this way, when you pray in my name... Your joy will be full. Now, we've talked about praying in Jesus' name. That's not a coupon code that guarantees that your prayer is more likely to get answered. No, it's praying as though Jesus would pray. It's like writing a document and then, and then asking Jesus to sign underneath, to sign off on it. Says, this is exactly what I would say. Asking for what he would ask for. Wanting what he would want. That's how our joy is fulfilled when we learn how to pray the way Jesus would pray. We experience the fullness of joy. We got a prayer meeting tonight at six o'clock, and I got to confess that I think I lack a lot of joy in my life because I don't pray. And I think I got it all backwards. I think I think about prayer as, a, as an obligation, something that I'm supposed to do. It's not an obligation, it's an opportunity to have my joy be made full. You pray about zero things, you have zero opportunities to rejoice in answered prayer. You pray about one thing, you have one opportunity to rejoice in answered prayer. You pray about ten things, are you with me so far, do I need to keep going? You pray about a hundred things, you pray about two hundred. 
We don't have joy because we don't, the book of James says, we do not have because we do not ask. So let's gather tonight. Let's lean in to the Lord. Let's trust in this promise that we will experience fullness of joy when we take him up on this opportunity to pray in the name of Jesus. So Jesus' victory means that, that our sorrow will turn to joy, that we have joy even in the midst of our sorrow. Here's the second thing. Jesus' victory means that we have love from the Father. We have love from the Father. He says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So Jesus is telling them about an hour that's coming, that he's no longer going to speak in analogies or figures of speech. It's all going to be crystal clear to them. I want you just to store that away in your mind right now. Just pay attention that he said the hour is coming. He's speaking about a time in the future. It's interesting. There's so many references to time in this text, right? In a little while, in a little while, in that day, in that hour. So just store that away. He's talking about a time in the future. Verse 26, he says, in that day, another reference to time, a time in the future. He's back on the topic of prayer. You will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Jesus says, you don't have to go through me. You go in my name, but you can go directly to the Father. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin, when he rose a victorious life, we have access to the Father, to go to him in prayer. But I love what he says in verse 27. We should just stop and marvel at this. He says, the Father himself loves you. The Father loves us. Jesus made a big deal about this in John chapter 14, verse 21 and 23, about obedience. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. All the references to love in John 14 is agape, this unconditional, boundary-breaking, climb over the wall, over and above love. There's four Greek words for love. There's this agape, this super love that's referenced here in John chapter 14. And then there's phileo, brotherly love, or family love, and storge, and, and then eros. And sometimes when we talk about the Greek words for love, we sort of elevate agape so high that any reference to any of the other words for love gets kind of diminished. But when we do that, we sort of miss, we miss something beautiful. You see, going back to John chapter 16, when it says the Father himself loves you, he doesn't use agape, he uses phileo, which is brotherly love, which is family love. And just think about that for a minute. What Jesus accomplishes us, accomplishes for us on the cross, makes it possible for us to feel loved like we're part of the family. That we are adopted into the household of God. That we're brothers and sisters, that we relate to God as father, that he relates to us as sons and as daughters. Agape, as beautiful and as powerful as that word is it doesn't convey that family, that relational connection that phileo does so beautifully there. How do we 
experience becoming sons and daughters of God. It says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. John said that in John chapter 1 in the prologue. If anyone believes in him, he has the right to be called children of God, to relate to him in a phileo kind of a love. Verse 28, he says, I, I, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Now look at what the disciples say in verse 29. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now I told you to remember something, right? Back in verse 25, Jesus says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. The disciples are like, oh, I'm pretty sure that hour is now. Yeah, we got you, Jesus. We're totally on the same page. We fully understand. Now, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we, be this is why we believe that you came from God. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 31. Do you now believe? Now let's be clear here, he's not questioning their belief. He just told them in verse 27 that the Father loves them because they believe. But Jesus is like, hold on man, just don't back up the truck quite so far. You're, you're not quite where you think you are, guys. I told you the hour was coming and you're saying you're having it now. Jesus said, well, let, let, let's be clear about what's going to happen now. You see, we are the most dangerous when we think we're in a position where we no longer need to learn anything. And that's right where the disciples were. That's the path that they were heading on. Now, now we understand. Now we understand. No more figures of speech. We got it now. And Jesus is like, hold up. You become a Christian and you think, well, now I understand how to, how to live a good life and, 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 and be a good person. Now that I'm a follower of Jesus, everything's going to work out okay and, and I'm going to behave the way I'm supposed to behave. And how's that working out? Or you, you, know, you get engaged or you, you read a book on marriage or you get some great teaching from Pastor Chris in the marriage seminar. And you think, well, oh man, we're going to have this great marriage. It's going to be so healthy. We're going to communicate. We're going to relate on all levels. We're going we're to write a book on marriage. You, you watch what your nieces and nephews go through as they're being raised by your incompetent sister and brother-in-law. And you're, a parent, you're, you're an aunt or an uncle and you're the superhero. You think, well, when I become a parent, oh my goodness. And then, uh. you see how the, your bosses and superiors treat the fellow employees. And then, and then you get the promotion and you think, well, now that I have some authority and responsibility, things are going to be different. I'm not going to be a leader like them. I'm not going to fail the way they failed. Or you finally slam the door and lock the, the door. When you turn your back on that area of temptation that used to dominate your life and you think, never going to have a problem with that again. And then the door slowly creaks open. We are at our most dangerous when we think we've got it figured out. When we don't think we have anything more to learn. 
Jesus says, verse 31, do you now believe? Verse 32, behold, he says, he's basically saying, look, the hour is coming and is now here. You want to talk about now? You think you understand now? Let me tell you about now. The hour is coming and is now come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. The disciples thought that their belief in Jesus at that point was so strong. I mean, they, sure, I mean, of course, Peter's going to mess up. Jesus already said that, but well, the rest of us, we're not going to deny him. Jesus lays it out for them. No, listen, guys, it's, it's not going to go well for you. But isn't it amazing that this is the very point where Jesus assures them of the Father's love? The Father doesn't love a future version of us once we figure everything out and learn from our mistakes. He loves us right now. He assured them of the Father's love before he told them about their upcoming failures. I hope this isn't true for many of us. But it may be true for some of us. We often think that our worst sins and our biggest mistakes are in the past. But for some of us, it's still coming. And the love of the Father is so massive and majestic. He loves you with an agape love, an unconditional love. He loves you with a phileo love. You are part of the family and nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. And whether your best days or your worst days are ahead, he loves you and he will love you. Christ's victory means that we have the love of our Father. He told, he told his disciples, now, remember, it's like minutes. He's, he's going to close in prayer, and then the soldiers are going to come and arrest him. It's a matter of minutes. He says, now you're going to be scattered. To fulfill what was prophesied in Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Listen, disciples, you're so confident in your belief right now. You think that you totally understand. You don't understand. You're going to be running like sheep in a matter of minutes. But the Father loves you and I love you. He knew that all of this would happen and yet he loved them still. He knows all about your story and yet he loves you still. So when Jesus talks about sorrow, it's not just sorrow that the world is rejoicing and they're lamenting about the circumstances. It's sorrow that is self-inflicted. When he talks about how they're going to lament and how they're going to weep, it's not just about what's happening to them and around them. It's because of what they did and their own guilt and their own shame. Jesus tells them that in advance and assures them of the Father's love. Look what he says. He says, even though you're going to leave me alone, the end of verse 32, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knew that the Father would 
help him and strengthen him. And somehow even the Father was going to be with him. Even when Jesus was going to cry out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was, he was doing that for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. So Jesus' victory means that we have joy in our sorrow. It means we have love from our Father. And lastly, we have peace in our tribulation. We have peace in our tribulation. Verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He promises them peace, but he says the peace is going to come in me. Don't take peace in how strongly you believe. Don't take peace in what you think you know. No, no, no. Take peace, find peace, Jesus says, in me. You know, one of, the, one of the often overlooked reasons for why we can trust the New Testament as being authentic and genuinely written by the apostles is that it contains so much embarrassing content about the disciples. If you were trying to lead a movement, and remember, the apostles, they were the leaders, you would probably want to gloss over some of this stuff, airbrush out some of the, the unsightliness. Not only does the New Testament record that these disciples ran like scarity sheep, it also says that they were proud and arrogant and brash about how confident they were that they were going to stay loyal. You don't normally do that. You see, because the apostles knew that the church was going to grow and be strengthened, not because of their strength, but because of Christ's. Jesus says, you will have peace, not in yourself. The peace, he says, is in me. The early church didn't grow because of the, cur the courage or the virtue of the disciples. It grew because of Jesus. It's in him, it's in him that they would experience peace. And then he contrasts it with the world. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. Notice the repetition of in. In me and in the world. In me, in the world. Jesus contrasts his peace with the world in John 14. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He promises them peace. He tells them, listen, in the world you're going to find tribulation. He says, listen, you live in a world that is messed up. And also, you are going to mess up. That's what he's been making clear to them. Right here, his last words are, the world is messed up and so are you. But he doesn't stop there. He says, in this world, in this messed up world, and as you mess up in this messed up world, you need to know that in me you will have peace. And in this world you'll find tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now remember how precise Jesus has been in terms of chronology and verb tense. A little while and then another little while. 
The hour is coming in that day. Not now, but in that hour. The hour is coming. Now the hour is here. He's being very careful. He's even correcting his disciples when they overstep and they misunderstand their chronology. So Jesus is being really, really clear about the sequence of events and that we get it in the right order. That's what makes the way what Jesus says so surprising and so amazing. Look at the verb tense of Jesus' last sentence. Discover it for yourself if you haven't already known it, because I'm going to tell you in a minute how amazing this is. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Not I will overcome the world. Not the day will come when I overcome the world. Not the hour is coming when I will overcome the world. He says, I have overcome the world. When he is gathering his disciples together in this final moment, he's not saying something like, you know what guys, I just got a good feeling about this. He's not saying, you know what, I I wore my lucky sandals today. I think this is going to turn out okay. No, he is so confident in his victory that three days before the fact, he describes it as though it already happened. And when we understand that, and what that would have meant for those disciples in those days, as they were looking at the cross and the empty tomb as something that was in the future, how much more for us as we look at the cross and the empty tomb as something in the past. And when we look forward to his return, we can have that assurance as though it has already happened. And then we can know, even in the midst of our sorrow, we can have joy. And we can be assured that even in the midst of our failures, we have the love of the Father. And even in the midst of tribulation in this world, that we can have peace. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just marvel at your glorious plan to redeem humanity. And we thank you for the impenetrable joy that you give us, that no one or nothing can take that joy away from us. We thank you that even our own failures will not disqualify us from knowing the family love of the Father. And we thank you and praise you that no matter what we may experience in this world, no matter what trial or tribulation we go through, that you have promised us your peace because you have overcome. Past tense. It's done. It is finished. You are victorious. So Lord, we thank you that you are our victory. We thank you that you are the great and glorious champion and ruler of all. We thank you that in you we are, as Paul said in Romans 8, more than conquerors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.